0: Welcome to Likeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places: sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our patreon at patreon.com/likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreoncom slash Podcast. The second wave of support, comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Els's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, A night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Okay,
1: welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with Ali Tugba. Did That's
2: I say definitely my name. I got it right. I think uh, Who is you know. the
1: uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the fastest-growing news outlet in all of Canada, uh, The Post Millennial. And I I feel like I'm talking to sort of a a young kind of Mark Zuckerberg or Ariel Huffington or something like that. Uh, So you have just been working insane amount of hours, growing so fast. How are you handling it?
2: Uh, Honestly, we've just been very blessed. We've had a really good team. Um, Every step of the way, I think we've just been focused on learning. Um, we started out sort of focused on how does, how does content go viral? What are people actually looking for? Um, and then after that, we just kind of focused on how do we make this more high quality? I think that's our number one focus right now. And we're sort of transitioning from this like tiny team in Montreal of like maybe four to five people working full time. And that's, like a, that's
1: all it was.
2: Well, for a very long time, that's I, what it I, was.
1: I got uh, the impression you had you were many more people. We,
2: we are now, you, you gave like are you're, you're like one of
1: those dogs that has a really loud bark. Yes, I, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> and you see, it's like a fucking chihuahua or something.
2: Yeah. I mean, we've, we've always been a very, very lean team overall. We've had a lot of freelancers who've been very kind to us, who've sent us a lot of good content. Uh, And for, I mean, for a long time, it was just me writing six to seven articles a day, just trying to figure out what works and what actually goes viral. Um, And then I would say about a few months in, we were up to like two to three people. Uh, You fast forward a little bit, we got up to five. um, And now we're pretty much getting ready for our largest period of expansion ever. We're going to have a full-time reporter on the Hill um, covering federal politics, We're preparing to have a video designer, graphics designer all hired as well within the next couple of weeks, a new ad seller, much more uh, multiple new writers. Um, And this video slash podcasting pivot that we've been sort of preparing for for about a year now, we're pretty much ready to roll that out. We invested a lot into our studio and that, that looks like it'll be ready in two weeks. So,
1: where is is the studio in Toronto? It's going to be
2: in Montreal. We are expanding to Toronto. I'll be I'll be going to Toronto within the next 2 weeks to open up a little office there so that we can do nice. higher quality advertising.
1: So you'll be reunited with your girlfriend. She's living there, right? This yeah, you've my girlfriend. Long distance. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing long distance yeah. for a
2: year, which is I don't recommend anyone. No, it's in terrible. A it's it's disaster.
1: It's heartbreaking. Yeah.
2: Uh, we're lucky that we're just both super super active. So she's studying law at Osgood. I'm working super hard, um, and the long distance sort of let us both not fail out of our lives. She didn't fail out of law school. I didn't fail out of the business. Yeah. Uh, but a year into it, I think I'm ready to. I'm ready to go back. Yeah, so we'll be we'll be back in Montreal. Toronto will be a small office. Montreal is going to be our uh, media hub. I think all the main production we're going to do is going to be there. All of our main staff hires will be there, and, and we're, we are going to stay a Montreal based company. I can't see that changing.
1: That's fantastic. Why do you think? I mean, this is something I was talking with my wife about. This, like, why do you think, aside from the virtues that the post-millennial has and the things that the questions it asks that other people are not asking, what do you think is giving you the the edge in the market? Definitely because you, right. I mean, if you look at the competition, mm-hmm. right, I know the competition Competition is A lot of my very good friends work for places like CBC and they, they have in resources you can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean like people who, with a lot of training, people who are getting paid a lot of, they have huge teams that can go and research things, and mm-hmm. they can they can afford to run down a blind alley for a month or two and then just like scrap the story because it doesn't work so when you are this little David against this like uh, the your competition has so much more resources than you, and of course they don't have to hustle because mm-hmm. it's taxpayer money that pays for all of it so which I, I'm not saying is necessarily bad, but it, it definitely gives them a massive advantage over you. How is it that you're still eating eating their lunch?
2: I think a large portion of it comes down to my beard. It's fantastic and well-groomed. <laughs> uh, and they're just really not focusing the on...
1: The beard is, is pretty fabulous, It's actually. It's very
2: important in this business yeah, that you have it's, it's it well-lined. Hip, it's hipster
1: fabulous. It has to be said. <laughs>
2: well, thank you. No, I, I think in all honesty, there's... The fact that they're not hustling says a lot of it, and I think authenticity also comes down to a big portion of it. Um, we are genuinely trying to be authentic uh, to what we believe, especially in terms of what we write. I think you can feel that raw energy in our writing um and especially in the hustling, like we really like we get a tiny piece of information and we put that thing out right away um, and push it with all the social media capacity that we can. I think the biggest thing though yeah, is you that guys
1: definitely know how to use social media yeah, better we're, than we're capable, the, that's man. an advantage you have over the the dinosaurs.
2: Well, they mean, just
1: don't even know how to Instagram or anything. I think so. at this point
2: we're we're probably going to have 2 million close to 2 million page hits, um more than a million users this month on our main site. And that growth is is pretty fast. I think we're at 20% of the national posts size and i think we're going to end up matching them within maybe 2 to 3 months. That's wild. Um but again, like this all comes back to also just we are a different generation. Like the core of our business is 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds um who actually are trying to build a modern business. A lot of the um legacy competitors, they just have a stupendous <clears throat> amount of debt. Uh and in Canada we never really had a media company that came at this from a business angle, we had vice, but vice was never really a competitive advertiser. They were this cool hip company um that for the most part kind of faked their way into into being a very successful company.
1: oh my god, uh, I can tell you stories <laughs> i because i'm from i I grew up yeah he he he, he built that you know, when I was in my 20s and late teens. So I, I saw all that. Like, it was insane. I mean,
2: listen, I'm always proud to say a Canadian company was worth a billion dollars at some point, but their <laughs> fundamental philosophy was was being very cool. Um, we're coming at this not just from the authenticity of of being young, of, of, of being uh, kind of rebellious and anti-establishment. We're also coming at this from an actual business perspective. So we are investing in our own technology. We are actively working on our own advertising tech to make sure that people who work with us, well, they're getting a good deal. You know, if you're advertising with us at the end of the day, you're going to come back, you're going to want to resign. It hasn't been an easy road, but at the end of the day, it's it's one of the things that's going to help us actually compete in the long term as we go from this tiny, tiny bootstrap startup to a more mature business that's going to be competing with the establishment companies.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it it's always struck me that getting government money or getting, mm. getting big money of any kind, you, you could be like a Saudi prince and you're getting like big, getting big money that you don't have to work for is, it can be a great blessing mm. if you know what you're doing and you're really smart, but it can be a horrible curse. Like I, I, Man, so many examples are like springing to my mind. There's a lot of musicians in my family, mm-hmm. like they have bands and things like that. And like, uh, one thing that I've heard from them again and again is that, uh, it was a good thing in a way for like Quebecois, like for Francophone culture, it was a good thing that you had like the quiet revolution and the rise of like the Parti Quebecois and the, the sovereigntist movement and everything, because suddenly they really started, there was like a lot of money for like, for Francophone, for French culture Mm -hmm. and that was a good thing however it has largely kind of backfired Mm -hmm. and it's backfired because and I just think this is like a basic human problem I don't think this is like a Quebec problem it's like if you talk to people who really know about music they'll tell you that like back in the day like in the 1920s and 30s and 40s Montreal was an absolute center for jazz Mm -hmm. like in all of North America it was considered like one of the great centers of jazz And specifically francophone music was this incredibly vibrant, it's like what we would think of as as like like black music in the States or like Mm. like African. It was like really vibrant and exciting and cutting edge and it was doing new things. And now it's unbelievably boring. Mm -hmm. It's so, so, so boring. And if you are singing in anything other than French, uh, if you're singing, like, if you have even one song on your album that's in English or is in Spanish or something else, you won't get funding for your album. Mm-hmm. And so what it ends up, like, inadvertently doing is you have these people who are, and a lot of them live in this neighborhood, like in Plata Montreal, and they're, they're francophone bands. They hardly ever play shows. Mm-hmm. When they do, nobody goes. Mm-hmm. They they play, like, the Francofolie like, once a year, and nobody goes. They're, they're living off of, they're making kind of, you know, between like 75 and 100 grand a year, all like government mm-hmm. uh, grants for their music. And their music sucks. Mm-hmm. like And they kind of know it sucks. Yeah. Like they're just sort of pandering to a particular idea of what like Quebecois music. And so uh, the, the weird thing is, is that the, the Anglophone bands, and the the kind of the the Haitian kind of fusion hip hop bands and the the sort of Arcade Fire's and things like that they're they're really vibrant mm-hmm. and doing really really well. Meanwhile, uh, but they can't get any government money, no. right? But then the the francophone bands are just rehashing the same kind of boring stuff. Well,
2: it's because they're 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 kind of trying to hit the bar of this random committee that doesn't actually represent any any actual listener right um it's sort of weird cuz i don't know a lot about music and i definitely don't know a lot about the more niche stuff it's not my area of expertise but you kind of think of like korean music where it's like it somehow has integrated into like modern culture somehow and it's cuz like it is trying to actually capture my attention uh and keep it and keep me entertained um, I don't know if Korea has a, a bunch of cultural grants. It's completely possible.
1: No, they don't. Oh, okay, they don't. No, your point is perfect, actually. Yeah. Okay, nice. So, no, it, it's 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 purely one of those like, yeah, uh, it's one of those places that's drip totally market driven.
2: So, it 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 feels like at the end of the days, uh, the aid can seriously harm your business, and I think it's tough when you're in a welfare mentality. And I'm, I'm taking this from a strictly like business perspective. Of, this has nothing to do with personal life, just business. I think when you're, when you are taking these grants, you kind of end up establishing your business around them because they are substantial. But the main problem is in the grand scheme of things, they're tiny. Like compared to your average client, a government grant is huge, but compared to have a, uh, compared to having a flourishing business that has many clients, it's not even comparable.
1: Yeah,
2: um, and in, yeah, it's we,
1: like you know, my my friend Aaron Haspel says he goes if a, if if one customer, if one customer can put you out of business, you might as well have a job. Yeah, like, like <laughs> you have to you have to be getting your your income streams coming from a def- bunch of different places. But if it's all coming from like one source, then you end up even if you say you're not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I was talking to Jonathan Kaye about this, like, last time he was on the podcast. Yeah. And, like, we were talking about the differences between listening to NPR mm. versus listening to CBC, CBC Radio. <clears throat> and, you know, and I, I like CBC Radio a lot. I have friends that, I have a friend who's a producer on The Current, and I think they do a lot of, like, really cool stuff. But it does get frustrating when you, when you listen, and it's like you know what the punchline of every story is going to be at the beginning. Like, it's like, we will, we will sort of publish anybody who says one of these five things. Yeah. Like, and so any story that, that has a particular moral is going to get in. And so there's, there's not, it's not, it's not exciting. It gets kind of boring. I mean,
2: you also kind of have that when, even when you're audience driven, like that was one of the biggest fears I had for our business when we started. And it's sort of like, we knew we had this very set audience and they wanted to hear specific things. And whether the you know it's them choosing to give you the cash piece by piece, or whether it's this major organization that comes and gives you it in one lump sum, you kind of end up feeling at least you have to put out content for that audience. So I don't know if it really is any different, and I sort of feel like regardless of what you're doing, you're you are kind of pigeonholed into putting out content for that audience. I think sometimes. Like it's a testament to how good your brand is. You can start working past it and actually put out content that's very, very different and your audience still picks it up. And that's sort of a sign of of like a piece, a content provider that's actually a tastemaker that's actually pushing the conversation uh, and that can really do some amazing things Um it's like Joe Rogan is probably one of the few people I think that right now is able to do that well, where he can bring people from all across the divide and have this like really nice conversation with them. And it doesn't feel like he's trying to um, pander to a specific base. Yeah. It does feel more authentic.
1: Well, I like, I mean, Claire, Claire Lemon has said this of Colette and then Jonathan Case has said this too. I asked him specifically, how do you prevent getting like captured by a particular particular group, and he said, "Well, basically, you know, there's a couple ways to do it, but the best way is just on a regular basis, just throw a grenade. Yeah, like put out something that you know your base is not gonna like, and just to just to remind them that that you are in control, that you are editing this shit, that they're not driving, mm-hmm. you know, and just tell them like, yeah, we we happen to agree on a lot of stuff, and that's cool, but like." I'm not pandering to you and you're yeah. not running this. So, yeah. and that tends to sort of like, uh, you put out something like that on a regular basis and it it kind of like scares off the crazies because they're like, oh, we can't really trust this guy or we can't really trust her. So well, you yeah, put out something like that and then it just kind of, it it <coughs> maintains like, it maintains sort of the principle that, that you are running this, this, you're editing this, they're not editing this. This is not... Uh, you know, star search or something like where people call in and vote and that's what we do. But I,
2: I think that's still either, it, it typically, it requires either some kind of investment that you can sit on or, um, I mean, Quillette is a very special case. They they got to grow because Claire just was, was willing to sit and slowly grow that paper. Um, she did
1: the same thing as you, basically.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I was a university student and had no bills and nothing mm-hmm. to really care about. And I just sort of uh, uh, did it as a Hail Mary with uh, a person that I, uh, you know, my business partner, Matthew Azrielli, after we had a conversation and found like uh, a piece of a, a Harvard study that said, on the left, for every standard deviation of thought, there's a major media company. On the right, there's sort of nothing until Fox News, which is a fairly large gap. And then Breitbart and then all the radio stations, which means the center right is just completely empty. It's just completely empty. There's no one there and it's like really open. Um, And we sort of just did it as a test. You know, we created the website. I would put out content for maybe the first few months, few a day. And we just sat there just to see what would happen. Um, I don't think most papers really develop like that. I think most of them get some cash in and then they sit on that and they can grow. And if they aren't in that scenario, they die out. They either die out or they have to pander really hard because they almost immediately need cash. And media is not something where you can just pump in $50 million and you have a media business. Mm-hmm. You sort of have to have this really nice overlap of your content with the audience and time. And there needs to be like maybe two or three stories that hit at the right time that connect you to the base. Mm-hmm. Like all those things really need to happen really well. And you kind of have to wait it out. There's no way where you can just do more right away and it happens.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, for you, it's obviously happened with this whole like, you know, Trudeau and Labellate. Trudeau's Ballet, downfall which is, has been nice. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really quite fascinating. It's been sort of like your Watergate. Like you've... Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, we definitely have not done, we haven't done a lot of the work. It's been the Globe and Mail. They've done fantastic reporting here. But I think we've been able to, uh, you know, mirror the cultural response to how people feel about Justin Trudeau and SNC and Lavalin really well. Um, over the last three months, which is I think the timeline of SNC, we've quadrupled our size. You know, we went from like 250,000 users to two million. So I guess ten times um, in three months, and that's really happened because of the way we're covering the story. And I think the cultural tone we're taking, um, some of our stories are now getting 200,000 plus hits. That didn't happen three months ago. That yeah. wasn't the norm. Well, it,
1: it, that whole thing is quite fascinating because, you know, I I think about most of the people, you know, and, and I, I would be included in this. Most of the people I know who work in, in media and CBC and different places like that, they they vote, if they, if they vote, they vote for NDP or they vote no. for the Green Party. They, they're not voting for, well, they're never, they would never in a million years vote for the Conservatives mm. or, or anything like that. But they also don't vote for the Liberal Party. But after Harper, Trudeau got in and suddenly their funding is back up and you know it's like, phew, it's Christmas, everything's awesome. And so even though like the vast majority of the people I know who work in these, these, what you called like legacy media outlets did not vote for Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. and feel like he's been too much of like in with pipelines and with, you know, all this other shit. They're so protective of him. Mm-hmm. They're so protective. And, and I think they're protective. And I've even sensed that kind of feeling in myself. And I mean, partially it's because like I, you know, I've, I've met the guy before he went into politics and mm. we, Gone to like Christmas parties like at his at his you know place and pine and stuff like that. And like he's actually like a very, very nice person, like mm-hmm. a really genuinely nice person. And I think a lot of people just don't want to believe it's true. Mm-hmm. It's like so heartbreaking. It, it almost feels like, oh, I thought, you know, I thought like that that I disagreed with you, but you were at least like really good. I mean And it, this is very it, it kind <laughs> yeah. of I think a lot of people sort of have a lot of Canadians have identified with Trudeau. Yeah. Even if they didn't vote for him, they feel like, yeah, we're like the basically, you know, maybe not always the sharpest knife in the drawer, but we're basically just really good people. And, you know, he means well, you know, and this is, this whole thing is like, well, maybe he doesn't mean well.
2: I mean, listen, until, until the India trip, I think it was really hard to point at Justin Trudeau and not say that, like this guy understood the media. He understood PR he made us look good. It was really hard to not just genuinely inherently believe all of those things. Uh and it was a really good image. Like you looked at him and you thought it's, you know, even the most conservative pundits, they weren't they weren't, you know, trumpeting sheer as the ultimate response. Uh everyone had this cautious mood, this cautious tone in how they were talking. Um but I do think that your point about how people identify with the prime minister, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I personally have never voted in a Canadian election.
1: <laughs> I know you told me that. Yeah.
2: And it's, it sounds crazy to people, but it—it it, to me it makes a lot of sense. I feel like the moment, uh, although one thing, I, one thing I will be doing for the next election is I'm going to go and then just cross out that I'm not actually voting for anyone so that I am exercising the right. Because I do think the right to vote is very important. I just think as a journalist, when you go out and you vote, you almost do identify now with the person you voted for. And their mistakes kind of feel now like your mistakes. And if they're stupid, you feel stupid. And like, (laughs) I guess, like, I understand that everyone's supposed to be independent, but I think we're all just way more petty than we are independent. And that pettiness just drives really deep into our core person. So... I've basically decided I just won't vote because if I vote, I'm going to really feel like this person is now my guy and I'm going to go to the ends of the earth for him. And I do feel like a lot of people, a lot of people feel that way with a lot of candidates. They're willing to give them a lot more passes um, across the political spectrum. It's, it's not really a conservative NDP liberal thing. It's, it's across the political spectrum.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, when pe- once people get invested, then you get the sunk costs, right? Yes. You've like, yeah. you've invested, you've put yourself out there. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've voted in various different ways. Some of the ways I've voted in my past, I'm like really ashamed of. Actually, <laughs> like, I voted for, uh, I voted we in the the referendum. One of the first times I voted when I was yeah. in my early twenties, I voted in favor of separation. Uh, I was like one of those stupid anglophone Quebecers who voted because <laughs> <laughs> I, I I still believed that that um, that the separatists were going to create basically like a, a Scandinavian style social democracy mm. in like a like a Norway or Sweden in North America, and I thought this like you know at that age being like a fucking idiot I like I thought this was like going to be a good idea yeah. back then. Uh but then of course the night of after he lost, he got like a little little drunk. Yeah. And then he was saying, like, yeah, basically It's the foreigners. It was uh, basically, you know, the money and the ethnic votes, yeah. you know, read uh fucking Jews and like, think, like that's basically what he was saying, you know. And like I was I remember I will never forget. I was sitting there with like a whole bunch of my friends. And we were all these like super, super progressive, like Montreal, like Anglos primarily, who had all like voted uh, yes and voted like yes and everything. And we were all, you know, really pumped, you know, as if it was like a Canadians game. We're watching politics was like a sport to us at that point. (laughs) And when he said that, you could just, everybody completely sobered up. It's like if you're, like, baked and suddenly your grandmother calls, oh, <laughs> we suddenly were all totally, totally, and our hearts just sunk, and we were like, oh, my God. It was like that moment where you realize what everybody's been saying this movement is all about, it's really, this is what it's really all about. Yeah. And that was my, like, that was my sort of come to Jesus moment where I was like, this is actually just a ethnic nationalist movement, primarily. Yeah. This is, like, there's nothing special about... This is not a socially... I mean, there are, like... uh, There is a minority, and Quebec Solidarity is sort of holding out the flag for that. But, like, you know, they're never going to get more than a few seats. And Manon is a very good person, but she's, like... She's a a dying breed. Like, they're not... uh, So, yeah, I mean, it it was rough. No, but I, I get what you're saying about, like, how... You know, if you if you get like connected, you can, you can be be invested, I guess. Yeah. Right? But but where do you think this is all gonna go? Because uh, I mean, obviously, this this Trudeau and the the scandal is an absolute disaster. It's a shit show. But I, you know, I was saying to you know one of your one of your colleagues uh, the other day, like I, uh, to Barrett, um, yeah. I I said like. I think he's still going to win at the moment because the the opposition is so weak. It's very analogous to what's happening in the states right now. Like, mm-hmm. like Trump will probably win because his competition is so weak. I mean, I don't think it, Trudeau and and Trump at the moment have this great advantage that their their opposition is cl- seems clueless to me.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, what do you what do you think?
2: I mean, I would I would say that. If we're talking about movements, the liberal movement is very strong in Canada. I think their coalition of the, of the people that they brought together is a, is a bigger coalition than the conservative coalition, especially with Maxime Bernier just existing. Um, what I do think, you mean?
1: Like just he just by him existing, he pulls away a lot he, of energy. He, or? Well, he's
2: going to pull something away, right? And the conservative movement has typically been like a thirty percent to like thirty five percent kind of vote. So they really do need every every percentage to win, especially because the Liberal Party is typically not that weak come election time. So it's hard for them to take away voters. Unlike the NDP, which kind of just collapses for the Liberals, and even now they they look like they're going to collapse. I don't think they've been able to make any of their payments for anything. They've had to remortgage their building in, in Ottawa. So they're they're in a pretty but tough we want to mess. Trust them
1: with our national economy. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Uh, it, so, we're t- if we're talking about movements, for sure. The liberal movement is in a bigger position compared to the conservative you
1: movement. You see it as a movement.
2: Yeah. I, I, if we're talking about, like, the left movement versus the right movement, the left movement is in a better position. Um, but the number one thing that typically kills liberal governments is insider fighting. Like, that's how they die. They kill each other. Um, Stephen Harper was a very intelligent man, but... He was never this charismatic all-star leader. Uh, He won his first few terms and then became this, you know, very kind of scary fighter um, because the liberals were fighting each other and they were disorganized. I think a lot of those key factors are now happening. You have a potentially weak liberal vote in BC where they have to win votes. You could have a potentially weak vote in Ontario. You could also have a surprisingly weak vote in Quebec. And, like, all those things uh, could lead to a very surprising turn come the election. Um, and if we're being on, honest about, like, where the liberals are, anything other than a majority government is basically a defeat for Trudeau, Uh until six months ago, we were all talking about more liberal majorities. Now we're talking about a potential complete liberal defeat. So I think that shows you just how far the bar has gone already. And we're just at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Campaigning hasn't started. Uh, the budget the liberals are, uh, have put forward doesn't seem like it did anything. Um, and it looks like Jody Wilson-Raybould, her writing specifically, they're prepared to keep fighting. So I don't know what's going to happen in a, in one more month. Uh, this scandal is very, very complex. But the part that isn't complex is that the attorney general resigned. I think that one portion in itself is such a scary thing that most Canadians, especially when thinking about the United States and their AG situation, they get that gut feeling.
1: Yeah. No it doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't feel good. One sort of missed, you know, you mentioned before that part of the reason why the post millennials been so successful is cuz the center right is just yeah. you know, wide open. Like if we were playing hockey you'd be like, "Oh my god, that's like that's like wide open. Just go through there. The defenseman's high, he's not paying attention." Like that it was a real opportunity there. I think a, a political opportunity that's that's missing right now is if you look at Stephen Harper's book that he just came out with, like mm-hmm. right here, right now. I was you know, I was like one of the biggest like anti Harper people. I couldn't stand him when he was the Prime Minister and all these things. But I, I read the I read the book, um, and I was blown away by it. It's it's mm-hmm. very, very, very powerful. It's really good. And the first thing I thought when I got to the end of the book was I, I was sort of worried. Mm-hmm. I thought like Oh my god. Like if if sheer starts talking like the Harper in this book, mm-hmm. he's going to he's going to kill. Yeah. But he's not talking like the Harper in that book. Like if Harper were to come out come out of retirement and come back and talk like like he does in that book. If any cuz basically exactly what you're saying the post-millennial is doing is occupying this like mm-hmm. this Empty over here. You got crazy, crazy like Ezra Levant and his like you know conspiracy theory nuts, you know Rebel Media that are out there. And then you've got kind of the left and the center left all occupied. And then the center right being just an open field politically. The the center left, the center right um, space that Harper takes mm-hmm. in that book is unbelievable. Like he says, you know we. We made all these mistakes. We we listened to these libertarians, these free market ideologues, and they they basically are a cancer on the conservative movement, just like the the, the communists were to the left in the twentieth century. And we need to just basically like kick them out of like the board meetings, like mm. stop listening to them because what they say is like poison. It's mm. dumb, like. You know, we I mean, need regulated markets. We need regulated banks. We need to take care of yeah. working people. And, like, I mean, he could win. I just don't know why Shear doesn't
2: do it. There's there's definitely some very tough questions that we need to talk about, like, in terms of what's going to happen to the Canadian population in the very near future. Globalization and technological change are are, are really about to mess up how – they're about to disrupt, like, all of society. Um I think a Canadian government put out a report a couple of years ago saying that like 30 to 40 percent of Canadian jobs are going to be automated and we have absolutely no, no clue what to do about this. So I think a lot of people are very scared because they see what's about to happen to them. A significant portion of the population has already been disrupted and is in this like chaotic state. And there's a group of us that are just we're winning as a result of the disruption. All of that is really worrying. All that needs to be talked about. And I think Harper does talk about the, you know, inner city and outer city mentality really well.
1: Um, Somewheres and nowheres. Yeah, yeah.
2: exactly. I just, I don't know if Andrew Shear needs to be super vocal about any of this stuff. Um, The media, on average, is is a little bit more center left, uh, I would say, on the whole of it all. Um, We just talked about how there was a, there's companies on every standard deviation of thought on the left. So I think if Shear comes out and just starts being in front of everyone's eyes more than he needs to, um, that just opens him up to, have, to be attacked. And I think right now, Justin Trudeau and, and his scandals are doing more damage uh, to his own brand than anything just that Sheer could do. And if we're thinking about how media works today, how we use social media to keep real track of our own supporters, how we then target them at the precise moment to get them to say the precise things, and, 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 and that, that that's happening, it's really hard to think that we're going to actually change someone's mind that's our opponent. Like when you have such good data on your people and you're constantly monitoring them and you're talking to them the way they want to be talked about and you know how they think, the only real way to destroy the relationship there is to make sure the base and the person in in who's who's leading it they no longer have a connection it's really hard for us to do that it's not hard for the person themselves to sever that link and mm-hmm. trudeau messing up with his feminist image with the indigenous relations with veterans relations with like these core groups with quebec potentially that's what's going to hurt him in the long term um, I, I think you, you talk about the fact that like Doug Ford really didn't go in front of the media during <laughs> the Ontario race. He made his own, I mean, I don't think anyone supported this, but he literally made his own fake news network. Oh yeah. And they just talked about, it still exists, Ontario yeah, News
1: Network. Yeah, power, no, right? I, well, I'm not going to say it's on the other. I'll tell you something about it afterwards. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm very well, I have a friend who, who like is, I have been offered a job with them yeah so (laughs) he told me what it actually how the sausage is made nice pretty intense
2: so when things like that exist it's hard to say that the media has any effect here i think at the end of the day comes down to what your relationship is with your base and trudeau is really messing up that relationship enough that i think sheer getting in there is just too many chefs in one kitchen way too many chefs
1: okay so you, you he basically can just like Sit back and let let the damage happen. I mean, look, who else (laughs) else
2: are you going to vote for? Jagmeet Singh is looking like he's continuously going to fail. And if Scheer comes out as being too right-wing, all that does is solidify the opposition vote against him. If you actually are extremely scared of Andrew Scheer, what you're going to do is you're going to vote for Trudeau. What that's going to do is it's going to collapse the NDP base even harder, and it gives even more votes uh, to to Trudeau. At the end of the day, he kind of has to walk this tightrope of being a very not in your face, very nice, calm, collected conservative. And I think that's really the only way he wins this. I think if he gets too deep into the you know right wing politics that we see in the states, that's his. It's it it basically could kill him.
1: Yeah, but I mean. Harper in his book, he doesn't he doesn't sound like an American right winger. He He sounds like a really sort of um, like an old school you know Tory. Like Mm. he sounds like a Canadian conservative, which is which is actually I mean most of what is called conservative now in the United States is actually radical. Mm -hmm. They want radical changes. You know, like the 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 old school Canadian conservative is like they have more of an attitude like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like Mm -hmm. just you know, if if something is seems to be working well, just like leave it alone. Don't don't mess with it, right?
2: I mean, I would say like just politics in the states in in general is becoming radical. I don't know. Oh yeah, if it's just, so
1: polarized on every yeah. way, yeah.
2: I would say that like even the new establishment of the Democrats has such a wide gap between the establishment. The same way that the Tea partiers and uh, the beginning of the, of, of the separation of the Republicans' had with, with the establishment Republicans. I think it was hard to see that in the Democratic base maybe two, three years ago, but you're really starting to see that now. I think mainstream news sites are even now like adopting the term establishment Democrat. That wasn't a real thing that we talked about. You were just a Democrat. You weren't an establishment Democrat.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of it has come, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, Like mm-hmm. a lot of it has become this like winner takes all yeah. strategy, right? And and what one of the things that Jordan Peterson has really stressed often is that when you're playing any kind of game, mm-hmm. whether it be the politics game or the business game or whatever, any kind of game you're playing, the most important thing is that you get invited to the next game. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you want to play the game in such a way that You are likely to be invited to the next game, and people are going to want to, like, you know, invite you to the next game. And so, if you have a strategy of winner takes all, regardless of what your strategy is, right? And nobody's going to want, I mean, like, although I, you know, I, I, to some extent, I understand, like, uh, you know, Jody Rabel's, like, her situation, right? Like, she's in a bad situation, but taping people's, Mm -hmm. like private conversations and posting correspondence, stuff like that. Like that is playing the game in a way where nobody's going to trust you again ever.
2: I guess, but I, I don't have a problem with her taping it. I don't have a problem with anyone taping anything. I'm going to be honest. Really? Yeah. Like I'm a pretty open person. There's some conversations that are supposed to be for the team, but let me be clear. Like I've never gone to my team member and been like, go do this extremely immoral thing. <laughs> this thing that is horrible, yeah. Yeah, like... Yeah. And then expect, hey, why'd you rat me out? Like, this, it's not equal, but, like, what if I come up to you and I'm like, I'm going to go murder the fucking teacher. I'm going to go murder. That's and, exactly
1: what you said before this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm,
2: I'm going to do it. Uh, total fake news, fake news. And then you just fucking... You call the police and you're like, he's a murderer. Yeah. And I recorded it because he said some crazy-ass yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should yeah. go stop this man before he does something terrible. And, like... The SNC thing wasn't illegal, but we're about to get we're about to get fucked. China's about to look at us and be like, "Hey, you were telling us they already have." Yeah, yeah. we've lost all our
1: moral authority there. Yeah,
2: it's it's the Saudis are going to look at us, say the same thing: "Hey, you constantly are bad mouthing us, and yet you have this giant hole." Uh, I mean, I think. There is um, global trading institutions that will look at us and also just say, like, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to have very set trade laws. Yeah. Um, So to pretend that this isn't something ins- immensely immoral and of the public interest, like, this is the same as, as a whistleblower. Yeah. Right? This isn't someone who recorded... Uh, someone to blackmail them later on. It wasn't like Jody Wilson-Raybould called them and said, "Give me thirty million dollars, or I'm going to ruin your life." Yeah, she said, "Don't do this terrible thing." In the tape, she says, "I'm thinking about the safety of the prime minister." Right? She's warning him that what he's about to do is wrong. Um, so I, I do, I do have a, I, I do have a problem with the idea that she shouldn't have recorded this. I think the clerk resigning kind of showed how much he knew he fucked up. Um, We're going to see how far this goes – this continues to go. But let's go back to where the story started. Like, it started with, like, I didn't pressure her. I didn't direct her. (laughs) Oh, wait. No, I did. I mean, it didn't do it hard enough. Oh, no. She still had all the power. Like, how many more lies are we going to believe until at some point we're just like, we need a real investigation? Yeah. Like, this is – we started this at, like, we did nothing wrong. And now the argument is just, like, we did it for the jobs. Oh, wait, the jobs thing wasn't even real. We did it for something.
1: Yeah. Well, I think what it is is it's it's a kind of corruption, which is – because I have talked to a lot of people about this. And, like, it, it's a kind of corruption that is so much more insidious – than the kind of cartoonish idea of corruption. Yeah, we have this like cartoonish idea where there's like a brown paper bag, and I'm like, yeah, here's... like uh, you know, I'm making off of your account. like like you give like a, a bunch of money inside a, a bag, or you know, like there's a brown envelope or something like that. This is actually a, a far more insidious kind of corruption because what it is is it's these people that all went to the same. They all went to LCC. They all went to Soundhouse. House. They all went to the same private schools. They went schools. to my alma
2: mater. McGill. They all
1: went. To, they all went to you know the, McGill. They they did the same. They, they did the Europe backpack trip yep. at the same time. They went to the same brown cafes in Amsterdam. They've got the same pictures of themselves with like long hair sitting on the steps of McGill, kind of smoking. Weed. They I they do... basically think <laughs> of themselves as good people, and and in fact. I would say they are good people. And so they assume that whatever we're doing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, hey, I, I know that. You know, okay, yeah, they did some shady shit, but, like, they basically mean, well, these are good people, and they've got the interests of Quebec and Canada, yeah. like, at heart. And so, come on, just to give him, he's a good guy. Let him off. He, <laughs> he didn't, he was drunk. He didn't mean what he said. like, And so it's it's a kind of corruption that is... I think I, a lot of people I've talked to about this they don't they don't get it. It's not corruption in the sleazy brown paper bag way. That is actually much easier to call out because because you sort of know that yeah, yeah that's shady. It's like this it's is Conrad no money. The money. There's, there's no money changing hands here. There's no. It's just people who who believe that they're inherently mm. good and they mean well. And they trust it because I know that guy,
2: you know, like... They almost believe their own bullshit.
1: Yeah, they're sure that, like, this is a basically good institution because it's, like, my people are running it. My generation that I grew up is running it. And so they're not bad people. Yeah. You know... And that's dangerous.
2: It's scary, but it also is hilarious how much we all do fit the stereotype. Like, I think... I probably have the same long hair photo sitting on the steps of what <laughs> you're talking about. So do I. Yeah. We, we all literally just went there and did the exact same things. And I, I do understand, like, where a lot of the mentality comes from. Um But it all just comes from a very scary place. Like, the mentality of, like, this is our people versus your people is kind of scary. I think there's there's a quote of Justin Trudeau coming out and saying, like, they ask him, like, do you think Canada's better served when Quebec's in charge? And he's like, well, all the prime ministers that are really good came from Quebec. Uh, We're good people. This is our country. And it just it's the place where like provincial nationalism gets too far. Um, And I think the federal identity is supposed to be superseding everything else. And I think maybe that's controversial. Who really knows? But It is really, it is a very scary and worrying kind of nationalism that undermines that entire mentality that's coming from it. And uh, it's funny because it comes from a lot of the people who are typically um, branding themselves anti-nationalist. They, you know, they're the people who are um, vocally anti-nationalist for almost every other scenario unless it's funding the CBC or saving a corrupt Quebec company that pays for strippers and yachts. I mean, I'm not hey, against. Don't, the knock it yeah, it, okay? listen, don't knock it till you try it. Okay, so. don't knock it till you try. it. If SNC wants to buy me <laughs> strippers and yachts, the post millennial will publish very yes, pro. Absolutely,
1: for you. yeah. So,
2: or if the government wants to pay us a million dollars, I could I could change our entire editorial <laughs> policy. Just make sure it's in non-denominational bills, hard to tell, and the black should be green, just yeah. so it looks environmentally <laughs> friendly.
1: So the, the stuff, oh my God, this, the stuff that Gavin, I mean, I, I love that you have that hunger with the because yeah. like, like when Gavin McGinnis was getting vice going here in Montreal, the yeah. stuff that he would do to, <laughs> like, because he was just, you know, like you guys, he was yeah. just a couple people trying to, like, make this thing happen. And he would do stuff like there would be uh, – what was the band? They were from New Jersey. They were like a big hip-hop band at the time. But uh, they would be playing a show at like the, the, the Big O or something like that, and they were coming up here, and it was um, – can can't remember, I'm blanking on the name of the, the band, but he called up their general manager and pretended to be black – he said, I'm just a black man living up here in Montreal. And, you know, I'm trying to get this thing called Vice going. And, like, it would be really great if you could give me an interview. Like, like he, he did this, like, this full-on, like, patois to, like, get. And they, this is African-American band, which I'm blanking on right now. They, like, and they, they were like, oh, okay, yeah, fine, yeah. And so, and so they gave him, and it was over oh, the God. radio. Like it was so. Over. They never realized they Gavin, didn't see him. Is but, this
2: available somewhere? Um,
1: oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah, okay. he did tons. He was such an unbelievable hustler, yeah. like to just make things make things happen. Like, and he would get all these like we have a guy and contracts Yankee, and you know who,
2: who does who does our crazy things. And we he's a lot younger. He's starting out on his producing path. And last week he just spent an hour and a half with some Somalian scammers who were just trying to get a CRA information. He's like, I wonder where the end result of this CRA scam is. Um, and they ended up, so we gave them my number as his accountant. They ended up calling him with my phone number. And it says like my name, my photo, everything on the call. And then another Somalian man picks up and talks with, um, with, uh, with Yankee uh, and pretends to be me. <laughs> and I'm there. I'm literally besides Yankee. <laughs> And we're just we're just so dumbfounded by the fact that they were like this ballsy. They had the chutzpah to just literally pretend to be me. And they're like, "Hello, my name is Ali. I'm your captain." And Yankees just like, I I can't believe they are this ballsy. So we, we literally keep going. We go to the end and then they ask for like the bank account information. And we're like, well, we're not going to pay you. Do you want to just keep talking with us? And the guy got so offended. <laughs> He's like, you he literally wasted so much of my time. Like this is just so long. And we we're like, yeah, that was pretty.
1: That's amazing. So they're, yeah. the big, they're the big players now. It's not the Nigerians or the well, Russians anymore. Like- the,
2: the accent sounded like from, from uh, East Africa, but I'm not really sure. It was pretty hilarious. Uh, I I wish we could get it out, but we just got like so destroyed while trying to get this content ready. Maybe we'll release it in print at some point. Maybe
1: print really, print. you'll do that. So. Yeah, well,
2: Yankee had just he was just like y- yeah, like laughing the entire time and taking it as like a joke. So when you listen to the phone call, it almost sounds like we are pranking them while they're trying to prank us. It's like a, it's a video game or something. <laughs> Have good. you had
1: any like? I mean, I've just because we've yeah. we've had it here, like lots of organizations have had. It. Have you had people try and like sort of um sort of hack into you and try and like steal your stuff and like get your? And I don't they, know if anyone's offer, really. They hacked. try and like sort of hold you hostage and say, you know, we'll give you your data back if you like give us money. Like I mean, they, they they come can... out of there's a bunch of them out of Saint Petersburg yeah. that do stuff like that.
2: I mean, I don't think there's. We're pretty careful if we ever have any tips, so I don't think there's anything for people to come in and really take from us. Uh, we've had organizations try to affect our writing; they've sort of just been like, "Hey, change this overall. So there will be consequences." Uh, and we've been very, we've been very capable. So nothing's (laughs) over. You didn't flinch? You didn't
1: flinch when they like threatened to sue you and things like that? No,
2: we've been very, we've been very lucky and, uh, very blessed. I'm going to leave it at that. So so.
1: where do you see this going? Do you see this just continuing with more kind of print online? Do you see this going to radio? You said you were talking about podcasting. We're basically
2: getting. Video,
1: TV, where are you going?
2: We basically do like three month sprints. So um, we basically pick like an aspect of our business that we really want to beef up in three months. We basically haul ass and then once it's done, we go to the next section. Um, I know the grand vision is we're going to be going to OTT, long format, video production and podcast production. So that we're producing just all the long format content that you love from documentaries to uh, panel shows, uh, to, to fiction kind of content. So we're not trying to be this very restricted piece, uh, business, but we're also, we're expanding very slowly on, in terms of like each individual product. So when we launch it, there's a lot of resources put behind it and we are trying to be a subscription based, uh, business just as much as we are an advertising based business, So we started out with a membership. That was just our our base membership. It's like five bucks a month and you get a book sent to you. I know that's about to be expanded maybe five different ways within the next few months. We're about to have a polling system. So if you're a Politico, you pay more and you have access to daily polling and it's going to be in-depth polling for the election.
1: Oh, wow. The Bloomberg model. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's a, that was a brilliant business model. I mean, he he made billions off of that.
2: Yeah. It's just so. some people want very high quality data yeah. given to them, um, you know, as soon as it comes out. And we're going to be building into our verticals. You,
1: you have to have a lot of like money to be able to get access to all that stuff.
2: We've been good with our advertising. We've been we've been very good with our advertising. We're extremely lean. I mean, compared to most media companies, I think we're just extremely lean, especially by the fact that we are in Montreal. Like if you're a startup in Toronto, you're you're already paying so much more just by the fact that you have to pay rent in Toronto. Yeah. Right? Someone can someone can live in Quebec with a very median income, comfortably. Oh yeah, yeah. You can't amazing. do that in Toronto. Yeah. Really I know. Don't.
1: Like my, my my wife and I could never live the standard of living that we have no. in Montreal if we were in Toronto or or Boston or New York no. or London. Like it's just or Vancouver, forget it. Like yeah, no. It's you definitely the the operating costs are are really really low. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think realistically, we're gonna keep growing. Um, we'll be, we'll be pivoting to longer form content and print is just the beginning, but it's not something that we're going to be giving up. It's something that we're going to be improving the entire way through. Um, I know we're going to be making some massive investments into our technology, uh, most likely rolling out our own custom built system, like our own CMS, uh, as well as CMS. So it's the actual like front end system that, that like our site is based off of, um, we're not just going to be building off the content management system. We're also going to be building off the entire front end and back end, all the digital stack.
1: Right now you work with, you're on WordPress. Yeah. Based, and it's, right?
2: it's pretty, it's pretty miserable now because Is of it. Yeah. Cause of our growth rate. Like we optimize our website for, you know, X number of users. And then within a month we've like doubled it and then we have to go back and, and redo it. And just, WordPress. Do you have Do you
1: have like direct contacts with WordPress or no?
2: No, we WordPress is like a system you can manage yourself. You have a developer that does everything. Okay, because we
1: because uh, you know one of the main places the yeah. people who who write the code and who make WordPress WordPress yeah. Montreal is one of the big centers. I didn't know that. And uh, yeah, it is. It's like one of the big yeah. big centers for. So I should introduce you because like I, some of my friends are the word the people who kind yeah. of like build I mean, WordPress. Listen,
2: you can make WordPress you know, be there for 30 million users. You can make WordPress work for a very big site. A significant portion of the internet is based off of WordPress. Um, The big difference is now we're trying to go to a dynamic website. We're trying to use user data um, and user experience to actually develop the content we have on the website. And we want to show more than just the basic, you know, text and image and video. Uh, We're going to be starting to get into a lot of data journalism. We're going to be getting into just long format investigations and to make those pieces profitable, Mm -hmm. we're going to need better technology to make sure they, you know, you get every ounce of of value out of it. Whether it's a dynamic paywall to make sure that you're only trying to turn the most dedicated users into members, or it's just a web stack that's going to make your site faster. You kind of need all of them to be there.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's where because I I know when I talk to my my students who tend who are, you know, on average eighteen nineteen I guess like yeah. and um, they get most of their news they don't read they've never read a newspaper yeah. in their life most yeah. of them right they get their news and they also don't watch TV news no. at all they get their news off of YouTube mm-hmm. they get it off of podcasts they have um, they will have like a particular podcast like for instance let's say this is not very common but let's say they um listen to the current mm-hmm. right they don't listen to the current on the radio when it's mm-hmm. on they have the the podcast app mm-hmm. for they have like subscribed yeah. to the current like stitcher or whatever and yeah, yeah and they like they listen to that so they get it primarily in that that auditory yeah. like through their headphones All right so it seems like if the post millennial is getting it is getting to them in in some sort of auditory way, that yeah. would be you know
2: I mean yeah the big the big thing is that people's consumption of entertainment and media hasn't gone down at all, it's increased by quite a bit. The format that you get it in has just changed um and I think one of the biggest plays in media is just be where the modern consumption you know route is. Be a little bit younger than your competitors, uh so that the younger audience, which hasn't picked a preferred brand right now, uh, can identify with you.
1: You must be like twenty. Cause I'm <laughs> forty-four, and the average person I know in in the media is my age or older. Like yeah. between forty-four and like let's say fifty-four. I did. So a, you guys are like twenty <laughs> years younger than the average.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I did a media trip a little while ago.
1: What
2: is a uh, media trip? they, they <laughs> so you grab, drop
1: acid and go to the CBC website? I wish what you, that's what no, that would no. be great. What, do you, what is a media uh, trip?
2: They, they, you know, organization takes a bunch of journalists to okay. a random country for you guys to meet people. Um, so I was on that, I was on the, the trip and I was maybe like 20 years younger than the next person there. So I definitely felt how young I was compared to the everyone else. But our site has a pretty diverse audience. Um, it's not... I mean, we don't have like the under 18 category. That's not really where we are here right now because I do think our topics are very, very serious. Uh, you do kind of need to be kind of dialed in to politics and the global world to understand where we're coming from. But from 18 to 60, there is a completely equal distribution of people. So, you know, we have a lot of 20 year olds, a lot of 30 year olds, a lot of 40 year olds, a lot of 50 year olds, a lot of 60 year olds. There isn't this ginormous number of sixty year olds compared to the number of twenty year olds. They're about all equal. Mm. So I think that shows you how much we're bridging the gap in that we're we're where, where we are, the old people can watch us and they still enjoy it and they understand where we're coming from. Uh, and then the young people they're starting to pick it up too, and they're starting to enjoy it and 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 I think they enjoy it the most. Um, and I'm hopeful that. As our quality picks up and as we do more distribution mechanisms, like you know, doing more on Snapchat, doing more on Reddit, uh, we'll get to a younger audience as well. I think we do want to get down to the sixteen plus category. Mm-hmm. That would be nice.
1: Well, you know, I, a friend of mine he got a job with the the basically the foreign service in Canada, and he has worked as like uh, basically second in command in various kind of sort of Canadian embassies all over the mm-hmm. world and stuff like that. Anyway, when he got this when he got this job, they first gave him this I don't know what you call it. It's almost like like this boot camp situation, this training which I thought was absolutely mind-blowing. Like he went all over Canada. Mm-hmm. Like they he went they they flew him up to the Northwest Territories, to Yukon, he went to Baffin Island. He went to, uh, to like all over Vancouver. He went to like needle exchange programs with like junkies, like in Vancouver. He went to actually see the tar sands, like all around Alberta. He went and like talked to people up, like in Fort McMurray. He like went and looked at all this stuff. He went to, uh, he, He did, like, a ride around with cops in Winnipeg in, like, really dangerous, like, thuggish neighborhoods in Winnipeg. He went different places in Toronto. He went all over Quebec, all over, like, Labrador.
2: Real traveler.
1: Well, they basically, they wanted him. They're like, you're going to be representing Canada in the world as, like, a diplomat, as a senior Mm. level, like, in the Foreign Service. We want you to actually know the country that you're representing. Yeah. And he said to me, like, after he went through all this, he was telling, you know, he and his wife were over for dinner, and, like, and he's telling Lisa and I about all this. And and he said, you know, if if this was required of people who, like, journalists in Canada and of, like, you know, professors in Canada, if they had to actually go around and, like, see the country that you're talking about and you're preaching to, it would be such a good thing. Because very often you... You know if you get somebody who just lives in a little bubble in Toronto or Montreal and they're like pontificating about like the tar sands and the pipelines and stuff like they have no fucking idea what they're talking about they've no they really they have no idea what they're talking about I'm, they're yeah. talking about like like the fisheries in Newfoundland they have no they've never met a fisherman they've never seen they don't know what they're talking about and so if you if the post millennial could somehow. You know, it sounds like you've been doing a lot of that. You've been trying to sort of tap into those yeah. like those voices that aren't kind of making it into I'm, the mainstream uh, media. I mean, I'm
2: blown away by just... Like, the more I'm in news, I'm, the more I'm blown away by how much we write about stuff we don't know. Like, a <laughs> yeah. you know, topic comes up and it's breaking news and you just kind of have to cover it and no one's in the <laughs> office and you're like, fuck, I guess I know about 19th century Vienna yeah. orchestras now. Yeah. And you research and like... You hope that the skills you've developed doing all these, you know, all this writing helps. And it does a little bit, but it doesn't replace real knowledge about the subject, you know, like deep wisdom over time. Yeah. So I think that's a serious factor in news that's becoming more and more obvious as well because more businesses are doing a few things. They're trying to game the Google search algorithm. So I'll go through content, especially for things like gaming and it borderline won't make sense to me because it's been so optimized for Google that the text is, is like written from a Fiverr account, probably someone in the third world, but they knew what they were doing for Google. Um, and that's really lowered quality of content. And the other one is like companies keep cost saving and firing their best fucking staff. Like their most experienced best staff, they're firing them and then replacing them with 20 year olds. And I'm a 20 year old. We're great but you, I can't really mit, like make up 55 years of, of work knowledge in a semester of learning. You know, yeah. take, it's going to take a few years for me to catch up. So that's really also lowered the quality of the typical paper, especially if they're not a paper of record. If they're not a New York Times and they didn't have 700,000 paying subscribers who were guaranteed to stay for two years. You know, Most papers don't have that. Yeah, So they cut their best staff they optimized for Google. And now what you have is basically content designed for robots. That's not even enjoyable. <laughs> you
1: no, know, I, 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 I hear you completely. That's, and I yeah. know that like having, having a lot of experience yeah. and stuff like that is definitely is very, very useful. But I think after Tom Wolf died recently, um, we had, you know, we had somebody on the podcast and talking, he was a huge fan of Tom Wolf mm. and just talking about what is his real legacy, and one of the things he said that I thought was amazing is he's uh, Aaron Haspel, a New York philosopher, and he said what Tom Wolfe and people like Hunter S. Thompson and stuff like that, what they understood is that actually making really fantastic journalism, making really great stories, it's seventy percent material and thirty percent skill yeah. as a writer so it doesn't matter if you've got like 40 years of like experience and you're really wise yeah. or you're a really good white writer and you did a journalism degree or you did like it doesn't matter like actually what makes a really great story is which story? they both understood is going to the place yeah and talking to the person who works in fort mcmurray talking to people who know what the fuck they're talking about yeah. and listening to them and telling that story. Yeah. Like that's actually like I mean most of what makes a really great story I think, is that is good material. Yeah. It's not you.
2: I right? think that's that's if we're talking about the place we're probably making the most expensive investment and the costliest investments over the next six months, it's precisely that kind of content where we will be sending like, you know, journalists, camera crew down on location to do a thirty minute you know, in-depth look at a Canadian issue, uh,
1: but even the American one, like you had yeah. that one article uh, where, we where, where Barrett CPAC? went, yeah, where yeah. Barrett went down, and like I
2: loved that. that I mean, I loved it because it was
1: it was actually really great. Yeah. It was very well written, and it was a great story. But what I loved probably about it more than anything else is that a journalist actually got yeah. like went out in the world and went somewhere. And they went to an actual place and they like, were very and talked to people and went and talked to people and had an experience yeah. that involved them leaving their house.
2: Yeah, Barrett like, is by the way a liberal. We put him in the car with a hardcore conservative who has a bunch of guns.
1: He's not just a liberal; he's a progressive. He's yes. a pretty lefty guy. He, he's yeah.
2: probably the left the the local leftist in our office. We put him with our one of the hardcore right wingers in our office (laughs) in a car for like twenty plus hours, um, and then set them down. Sent them down to CPAC to Trump Land. Uh, That's the Conservative Political Action Committee for Canadians, not the Canadian TV channel for all with with Mm. all the political content that we have in Canada. It took me a while to realize that we were sending. I thought we were sending them to like a Canadian political event. And they were like, no, no. And then CPAC. you got the bill, and
1: you're like, oh fuck. Oh <laughs> fuck.
2: Was, okay, I guess that's how yeah. much the gas was. Um, but we sent them, and he he actually got to talk to a lot of people, you know, around Trump. I think they got to talk with some of the people involved in the government, and it was expensive. But that's a piece of content that's probably come up in every conversation I've had with. It was people. very impressive. Yeah, yeah, they've all enjoyed it, and I think that is the, exactly the kind of content that we're going to be doing a lot more of. Uh, even if it's really expensive. Um I think we you know we just published our ethical journalism standards and our mission statement maybe 3 weeks ago. So there's definitely steps we're taking to to actually become a worthwhile company rather than a a laboratory for, to generate clicks.
1: Yeah. Well, I know when I when I've asked when I've asked you know former students and present students yeah. Who come from you know, rural areas in Quebec and different things. As what would you want more than anything else? Mm-hmm. Like if from a news organization, and they've told me like a Mohawk student told me she's like you know I would really like for them to just uh, get somebody to come over to Kanawaki and like yeah. talk to us for like an hour, yeah. yeah, and get like an actual like like talk to us about what we think or like you know my former students who are cops say like. Yeah, before you like come up with the story about, come and like talk to like some yeah. cops, sit down with them and say like, yeah. what do you think about this? Like, and actually have a conversation. You know, like, I mean, a lot
2: of the breaking news work we've actually done has been in Alberta, um, and it's been primarily led by the work of Travis Gladue, who who's who's an Indigenous member, um, out in Alberta, and he, and he's he's breaking stories uh, across the province, sometimes stories that that reach across the country. And, you know, he's he's doing it in a very different way because he's actually, you know, as we're talking about, it, he's going down on the ground, actually talking with people, grabbing all the primary source information, and then creating a story with that. Um, it's definitely been something that's a little bit more hard, but the people impacted by it and the communities themselves they they really appreciate the story more because they their their story is actually being told. Uh, so that's that's another area, one of the areas that we're going to be investing in, um, and we're pr- actually looking at expanding our Alberta uh, division quite a bit because after Ontario, Alberta is actually our biggest uh, area of consumers. Wow! Yeah, it's it's Ontario, Alberta, then BC.
1: Yeah, well, I know like one of my best friends in the world. She uh, she lives in Edmonton and. She had heard about you before anybody else that I didn't even realize that you were around. And she mentioned, she said, Oh, yeah, this post millennial is really amazing. <laughs> uh, and I said, What is it? And she goes, It's in your backyard, John. It's like in Montreal. And yeah. I really, and I had never heard of it. She had heard of it, yeah, like a lot in uh in edmonton so yeah you you were like sort of big in japan big in alberta right? i mean that's for, <laughs> I,
2: it's hilarious because i've actually never been to alberta in my life <laughs> never been west i've never been to bc i've never gone past uh ontario um but
1: uh, you gotta go to alberta it's so beautiful i mean i've heard like
2: my business partner's gone and he has some beautiful photos i would love to go uh but here's the here's like one of the funny facts uh, about our audience that I, I heard a while back, it's this number is probably quite a bit higher now. But one in ten computers in Saskatchewan has opened up the post millennial in 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 any given month over the last four months. What? Yeah, and I think it's like it's quite a bit higher now. But it's always <laughs> hilarious to me. That's it's,
1: fascinating because that's the oldest province in Canada.
2: saskatchewan D-
1: demographically it's I, I the know, oh yeah, it's oldest the oldest people. in terms of age like it's they, also because
2: they're populate like in terms of users, they're not a big portion of our website, but in terms of like how small their population actually is, um our users actually make up a large portion they're loving of the on population. you <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, my other goal is like one day having every computer in PEI have had our website on it at some point. I feel like that's, it's only like 150,000 people it should be doable. Yeah. That's, that's the next goal. I think every computer hey, you ever?
1: Thought of like having like the way Quillette had in Toronto, like a, a sort of a post-millennial get together, like a, like a party. We're going
2: to have some pretty massive announcements on events. We're going to have some pretty massive announcements on the video itself. We're going to have some pretty massive announcements on the long format content. Like we've secured some pretty massive partners uh, for all of them already. I can't really go too into depth. Yeah. I got in trouble because I talked about this stuff a little while ago, and they were like, "It's too early. You shouldn't have said it." And got, well,
1: fuck. well, I didn't bring back, I didn't bring up where you just came back from. But, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, suffice yeah. it to say, you've been like uh, I've been working hard. You've been balling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've been like traveling around and like uh, yeah, we've international man of mystery. So <laughs> you've been uh, you've been you know so a lot. I mean, a lot of people are very excited about what you're doing i mean that's definitely i mean
2: our team has been fantastic like i work hard but our team the core team has been very solid my business partner matthew Azrielli, has been fantastic we've been working our butts off to make this happen um and and really i don't think if, if if it wasn't timed the way it's been timed now if we didn't have the partnership that i have with matthew um and we didn't have this exact area in the political spectrum that we do, I don't think any of it would have worked. And I think like one of the hardest things has been maintaining this pro freedom of speech mentality, even when it's been really tough. I mean, you know, it it is really tough to have an actual freedom of speech mentality today. Um, but for us, we've been lucky and it all just kind of crossed really well. It was Mm -hmm. really,
1: really well. Yeah. Well, I, I read, um, it was a couple of years ago I read uh, Ariel Huffington's book where she talked about building this like media empire and stuff like that. And one of the things I remember from the book so clearly, and I I get this from you very often, is she said, you, you have this like adrenaline, like rush and you're just like going like 70, 80 hours a week, like all the time and go, 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 go. And media is, is, it's always like happening. Right. She goes, but then you like hit a wall and you realize that, um, the not sleeping,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you realize that the, the number one way in which, like, the lack of sleep affects you, it's not what you think. You think it's going to, like, make you sort of get every cold and flu that's going around. Yeah, it kind of does that a little bit. And you think it's going to make you, like, kind of, like, grumpy and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Because actually, you realize that the, the biggest effect of not sleeping and being in that adrenaline junkie, like, I'm building a media organization thing, is you lose your creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah for You sure. start sort of like just thinking in a very kind of categorical, predictable way. Yeah, And she goes, when I, when I started like saying, okay, I need to like actually sleep and I need to just like let it go and like go to sleep and, and do that. I suddenly was able to think in a much more creative way mm-hmm. rather than a kind of a speedy riddling way. Like yeah. I, I had, I, I had, I could think in a more creative way, and that's where I actually could see business opportunities yeah. that I normally wouldn't see yeah. because I'm like – I have the capacity to think creatively and long-term rather than just being like on the Lafayette, like kind of like hamster yeah. wheel or whatever whatever the thing happens I to mean, me at it, the time. You it know definitely know what I mean?
2: like, feels like a crack hit when you're – <laughs> I've never done crack, but Yeah, I feel like it definitely yeah, feels like a crack Yeah, neither <laughs> but it's uh, like – it's yeah. the media cycle is, is truly grueling. Um, I definitely think of like days I've gone without like sleep, like maybe three to four days back to back. I like got the peak of SNC. That's crazy. We had to get so much content out that I just couldn't sleep. Cause I also knew like it was such, it was content that was going to get so many hits. So if there was any mistakes, we would get caught right away. It would be a problem. And it would be bad for the brand, so like and at the same time, I knew like if we waited, we would lose so much traffic that we couldn't wait. The story was happening in yeah. minutes. um so I went like four days without sleep
1: that's insane uh
2: but if you also look at like the post millennials' growth chart, it's literally like the it's like giant growth for like three months, uh, and that's like me working like that's the entire team working nonstop crazy hours we're all on a roll we have an amazing system then we hit this like wall as you're saying like where we're just like we can't really put out more content and we can't really distribute it what we have any differently so we're just kind of stuck we either need more cash or magic to somehow (laughs) grow and then you get really depressed and it's like instantly we plateau for a month and like that's the scenario where we've gone like, okay, our infrastructure right now has been tapped. What's the next maneuver? So again, it's like we go from like no sleep, no relaxation to now a month of kind of everyone's agreed that we there's no point in working overdrive on content because we've hit the wall and we now come back to the table and we plan and we're like, okay, okay. What do our users really want? Where can we go to grow? How can we be creative without spending more cash? And then we kind of like make a plan again. And then you go out and then we suddenly have three months of intense growth. Um, The nicest thing I learned a little while ago after I took my first vacation, like real vacation in maybe two years since we started this thing, um, was that it's actually really unstable. To, to do these, like, three-month sprints and then a month of, like, maintaining momentum. If we could find a mechanism to actually, like, stably develop every month and no one got burnt out, we would probably be in a far healthier place. Um, and when I came back, we actually started, like, rolling a lot of that out. We hired a lot more people. You know, we weren't five people anymore. We were something mm-hmm. a lot more. And now we're getting to a place where... We are functional every single day of the week, whether I'm in the office or not, whether Matthew's in the office or not, whether one person's sick or not, we're able to cover the base layer of content and we never have this off period. And what that's done is it actually created a lot of slack in our staff. So they are coming up with really creative ideas and they want to take on more roles And our users have now developed this relationship with us where they know more content will always be there. Mm -hmm. And they show up every day. And the effect of those two things has given us such good content that these people are now coming en masse. And because more people are coming just for the sake of coming, we take bigger risks on the content. Yeah. So it's like I look at the last month and it's like our growth chart has almost like snapped. And it's not because we're, quote, unquote, working our asses off anymore. We are, but not to the same extent. It's because we're now trying to build stably. Like, as stable as you can in a startup. But don't you
1: think that's – I mean, my impression, every time I've talked to, like, people yeah. who, like, have been really, really successful in, in business, uh, I've heard this so many times. I mentioned yeah. before, like, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, like, he, he said this, but many people have told me this. Uh, people I know who've made like, I mean, my my cousin has just you know sold one of his companies for it sold for sixty million dollars, and now he's building another one. It's doing really, really well. But like, what they've always told me is the biggest myth that you have is mm-hmm. the myth of gradual growth. Mm-hmm. Like that almost never that is like the exception that almost never happens. Maybe if you have a restaurant, yeah, you can like build up your clientele slowly over time. But like most of the time. You make like ninety five percent of your wealth is made in three three like like bursts where you strike where the, hi- the iron is hot. Like and you're you like,
2: like I can literally go back and find like three big three or four big moves that we've made that's defined the business for sure. But if I'm talking about like the actual number of users that we're mm. getting bringing infrastructure together is is really fantastic having a really good idea is really fantastic but if you can't get the system to work well and to execute well someone typically kind of comes and eats your lunch mm. like execution really does matter and you don't have to be the first person in a you know in a market to win as long as you can execute on the idea better and i guess where i'm coming from is is a business that now has a lot of the resources And we're learning how to execute this better and better and better. So to me, because I'm on the inside, like I I really appreciate those things that we do to just smooth out the curves, you know, the edges and make sure the business does hum. And the growth is definitely not gradual because it's exponential. The growth actually gets faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And the growth like really gets noticeable as it gets faster. But you want to get into a position where, as the growth gets exponential, your workload doesn't. Yeah, and I think that's what I'm trying to do right now for my entire staff. And a media startup is not a tech startup. We are in a we're in a really grueling scenario for everyone. And when we're trying to make it manageable, it's like we're trying to make sure they don't have 16 hour workdays. We're trying to make it just reasonable.
1: Yeah, it, it's funny that, that I'm like sort of making this parallel in my head, but like I'm reading this book. A uh, book right now on, like, Spartacus, like, the yeah. Roman slave who, like, rebelled. And it was, like, one of the most successful slave rebellions in human history. Nice. And he started off with, like, just a few people. I think it was, like, 72 people or something like that. Like, not a lot. Yeah. the bunch of gladiators that, like, rebelled. And, like, his... His movement, which Mm -hmm. lasted for a couple of years and completely freaked out the entire Roman Empire and they defeated Roman armies, he started off with 72 – I think it was like 72 people. And within like a year, he had like 70,000 people like this and they were just like roving around like conquering shit and stuff like that. And people who like study this, they say that one of the main reasons why Spartacus was so successful – is that he didn't try and do everything himself? Yeah. Which is that a lot of other kind of leaders of insurgent movements mm-hmm. of various kinds, they become like kind of micromanagers. Mm-hmm. They want to like run everything themselves, and they run themselves ragged, and they exhaust themselves, and or they exhaust all the people yeah. closely close to them. Spartacus was one of these people who immediately he would delegate mm-hmm. constantly. He would delegate to other people. He would share power mm-hmm. and share responsibility, and so he wasn't like exhausting himself. Yeah. He would have like other people involved, you know. And he didn't try and he wasn't a control freak yeah. about like running the organization. So, from my, I mean, regardless of what you think about like his, you know, raping and pillaging or whatever they were doing, but like it's probably bad. It was like, <laughs> it's probably whatever. It's like they're they were rebelling against the Romans, but like in terms of an organizational model, I thought. Like pretty smart. Like he was like pretty, pretty you know, badass about like managing, going from being this skeleton crew to this giant movement. You know and, what actually makes that
2: survive though? It's, it's building a real culture and institutions to make sure that you're delegating with purpose. I think like along the way we had a lot of like pretty bad early on hires because we were a startup and you would hire someone and they just wouldn't have any other skills and then it would get really costly. So, like, building those institutions into the company so that as you're delegating power, it does feel fair. People do feel like they're there with purpose. They do feel like this is just as much their baby as it's our baby. Um, and I think that's been really important because we've, we've always been willing to delegate, but delegating in most cases can have a lot of damage unless you build some really good institutions and some good culture into the company. And for a team of twenty-three-year-old dudes in the middle of Montreal, yeah, it's it's hard to do that. It's hard <laughs> to do like that. It. Well,
1: I mean, I, I've seen and I've I've participated in different institutions, and I've noticed that that has got to be like one of the biggest issues, like in terms of delegation of power, in terms of making things be flexible and yeah. fast. Like when I was in grad school in Baltimore, at Johns Hopkins, mm. if you wanted to get something done. It was I remember because my cousin was in grad school at McGill at the same time, and we would talk about this. And for him to get something done at McGill, it would be a nightmare because mm-hmm. like there would be only one person that had the authority to sign off on yeah. that thing. If that person happened to be like on vacation for two weeks, gone. that meant that like all of those forms would pile up on somebody's desk for yeah. two weeks, right? And then they would get back and they'd have less uh, other work to do. And so it wouldn't. nobody would get to it for, like, five weeks, right? Wow. Whereas uh, for the same procedure at Johns Hopkins, they had a much more decentralized yeah. model, and there would be, like, 30 people that had the authority to sign off on that thing. Mm-hmm. Now, that means that there's 30 more opportunities for somebody to make a mistake. Yeah. But they did the cost-benefit analysis, and they're like – to be able to be really flexible and fast mm-hmm. and limber as an institution to be able to like yeah. make things happen faster it's worth it to us yeah then rather than well, having news like news
2: is definitely in a in an awkward middle zone there where you don't want to publish fake news so you definitely want to make sure you have you know two to three editors that can go over every piece of content at the same time it, there is a two-hour news cycle on breaking news. If you don't have the breaking news up within two hours of it happening, chance of you getting any hits That's from insane. that is zero. That's insane. Unless you're doing like a really in-depth analysis or opinion piece, but I'm just saying coverage of the news in of itself is a two-hour cycle. So if you can do a decentralized system and still have everything come out clean, you're going to win. So there's a lot to gain by decentralizing as much as possible. Uh, you just got to make sure again the bar is there, the institution is there it's like the New York Times just expects the writers to fact check everything, and their whole basis is that we just expect you to do a good enough job and they have editors who still check, but that's not the purpose of how it's done for us. we can't take that mentality like I expect every writer to do their fact checking for sure, but because everyone's so young, we still have to tell them that we're definitely going to check everything we. And that means like we have to take on this extra layer before we can decentralize all the way. And I think you kind of have to know how many layers do you you put on yourself, depending on your organization, the people you work with, the, the resources you have. You know, I'm sure an American university has so much more resources than a Canadian one.
1: Mm-hmm. That's
2: yeah, probably very important as well.
1: Yeah, no that that that's very that's very true, but. Well, this is this is wild. I mean, like I I I feel I really do feel like I'm meeting a, you know, young entrepreneur like at the cusp of success and all this stuff. So, I uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And is there any uh, can you sort of leave our listeners with um where they can find you, how they can support yeah, you? Yeah, well,
2: right now I'm pimping out our membership. <laughs> Uh, okay. If you're interested in supporting our organization, you can head off to the post millennial. We have a five dollar a month membership. If you pay annually, right like right now, you'll get a book. Um, I'm pretty sure that's about to be stopped because we're about to launch a monthly book club. So our general membership, you'll just get access to specific kinds of content and a discount at our store. Uh, and then the book club membership, every month, you'll be sent a book uh, curated by our editors. Uh, most of the time, by people who write at the post millennial. So uh, go out and check that out.
1: That's amazing. So and the book club—you'll basically these will be books that are also kind of reviewed and discussed on exactly. the website. And so basically,
2: like every month uh, a, a book will be picked. It'll be reviewed. It'll be up for discussion in our community book club section, uh, and then it'll be sent out to all the members as well. Um, they're going to get a hard copy version just so that they actually get a little bookshelf that they can develop over time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to get us to a point where we can send them a digital copy and a print copy, because I think that would be the nicest, because you have the print copy to show off to your friends and then the digital to actually use.
1: Like a Kindle version? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Whatever we can really do to make that happen. Right now we're trying to talk to a major uh, book publishing company to try to get a deal set with them. Uh, but in the meantime, go out and check out the membership. Either way, I'll be very happy. If not, just go read the site. Our ads will still monetize <laughs> your clicks.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I wish you great good fortune with this project. And uh, we'll have to have you on again. Thank you. I had a great All right, time. Take care.